0: Listener Production. Please leave your message after the tone. Why am I jealous of my ex? I am so stressed all the time. How do I get into a routine? Is TikTok making me anxious? I think I'm being manipulated. Someone told me you could live with half a brain. This is Do You Fucking Mind? Mindset Hacks for a Badass Life. Hosted by me, Alexis Fernandez. Hello, my beautiful birds, and welcome to today's episode. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about something very fun, because once you shed light, a lot of a lot of the things that we do in our life, we don't even realise that we're doing it. And this is, I think, one of them. And once you shed light on this, which is the sunk cost fallacy and why it is screwing you, once you realise how much you're screwing yourself over for doing this, and all of us do it to some extent, it will be like a light in your life and you'll be re- you'll be able to change so much about your life you'll be able to approach things differently it is all about how you deal with losses how you learn to cut your losses how you deal with wins the possibility of a win versus the possibility of a loss and how you stop yourself from investing more time, money, energy and resources into things that are actually not working for you. So I'm going to give like a much better explanation and then what you can do to go about it and then questions to ask yourself. I love getting you to ask yourself questions because that's the best way to learn about yourself. I'm going to be doing that all after the brain fact. But it is so good. It is one of my favorite because I I started reading about this a couple of months ago and then I thought, I'll do it as a brain fact. And then I'm like, no, we're dedicating a whole episode to the sunk cost fallacy because it bleeds into every area of our life. It bleeds into relationships. Uh, That's a big one. Things you've studied at uni, jobs, investments you've made, businesses you've started, decisions that you've made and then you don't want to back out because you don't want to look like a fucking idiot saying, oh, I'm going to do this thing and then now I'm not. Or everything, everything. Every decision in your life is going to be influenced at least by this sunk cost fallacy. You're going to love it. Okay. No pet hates. I was talking with my producer just before on what like what pet hates could be and we came up with like all sorts of things, but... They're just too long-winded to even like start, but one of them is slow-walking people when you're trying to walk fast. She walks slow, her partner walks fast, and I'm resonating with her partner so hard. So sorry about that, Elise. Cool. Let's get straight into the brain fact. The brain fact of today is all about cyclooxygenase and its role in pain and the painkillers that kind of target these cyclooxygenase pathways, okay? Now, for the sake of this brain fact, I'm going to be referring to cyclooxygenase as COX, C-O-X, not COX as in penises, okay? So COX, cyclooxygenase is an enzyme. Fun fact, anything in pharmacology that ends in ACE, A-S-E, is an enzyme, okay? Okay. So cyclooxygenase, it's an enzyme and it is a major target for NSAIDs, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, okay? So NSAIDs, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, target the COX enzyme, okay? And there's a drug such as aspirin, ibuprofen, which is like Advil, Nurofen, naproxen, which is things like Aleve and then other other. And said drugs as well. These drugs, non-steroidal drugs, work on reducing pain and reducing inflammation, okay? But they also come with, a, a whole bunch of them do come with a lot of side effects when taken repeatedly or when taken in really large doses, such as gastrointestinal bleeding and ulcers. It affects platelet aggregation, which is basically a fancy way of saying like clotting, where the, where the platelets clump together and form a clot, which is necessary for many things, obviously. Uh, and it's also why people will use aspirin as a blood thinner because it kind of counteracts that effect. Um, and it, these drugs will also impair renal function, among other things. So cyclooxygenase is broken into two types. We've got COX-1 and we've got COX-2. And the newer version of the drugs, which I'm going to get into, only target COX-2 and not COX-1. So we do see a reduction in the side effects, but there are times where you're not going to want to take the ones that only target COX-2 and you're going to want to take the other ones. And I'm going to explain why that is. So NSAIDs work by inhibiting the synthesis or the creation of something called prostaglandins. So prostaglandins are synthesized by COX-1 and COX-2 and NSAIDs inhibit that, that synthesis happening. So COX-1... And the prostaglandins made by COX-1 are always on. They're always happening. It's just this constant thing. And these these trigger a whole series of things such as um, renal perfusion, which means that it allows more blood into the kidneys. It maintains the creation of mucus in the stomach, the, the GI tract. Um, so basically the stomach doesn't just eat itself and damage itself. And it helps with platelet production and platelet aggregation. Okay. Then we've got COX-2 and COX-2 is synthesizing prostaglandins. But this synthesis only happens when it's triggered by some event. And that event is tissue damage. So when you get tissue damage of some sort, which can happen in a million, like way, in a million different kinds of ways, ways, can I speak English? No. Um, and when these prostaglandins are produced, they have a lar- They play a large role in pain because they, uh, they cause inflammation, they cause fever, and they inhibit the, the clotting, the, the job of platelets, okay? Now, all NSAIDs inhibit COX-2 and some also inhibit COX-1. And like I mentioned before, we've got aspirin. Aspirin targets COX-1 more than it targets COX-2. Ibuprofen targets both equally. So does naproxen and things like that. And when you inhibit these, you're stopping what they normally do. So I said, you know, the first one is like, you know, the mucus in the stomach, allowing blood into the kidneys, all of that. So when you inhibit, you are stopping. Okay. So aspirin, which normally works on COX-1, you're inhibiting platelet- Aggregation, so that's why it's a blood thinner you're inhibiting the creation of mucus and renal functions and that's why you get all these side effects. when people have a lot of aspirin, they have gut issues, they have problems with it like stomach they get stomach ulcers and things like that. Um, and people with cardiovascular disease or at high risk of cardiovascular d- disease are prescribed aspirin over other NSAIDs because it still maintains that blood thinning you know. Then we've got a class of drugs called COXIBS, C-O-X-I-B-S, COXIBS. And this only targets COX-2. It doesn't target COX-1. So here you're not getting kidney problems, ulcers in the stomach, you know, bleeds in the stomach, but we are getting a reduction of inflammation, a reduction of fever, pain, and also a reduction of platelet inhibition, meaning that you are increasing platelet production, therefore increasing the chances of clotting. So while COXIBs, which only target COX-2, you would think, oh, well, that's so much better because you're not getting these side effects. It also would not be great with someone who's, at high risk of cardiovascular disease because you want their blood to be thinner. You're not going to go in and give them a a painkiller that's then going to thicken their blood when they already have cardiovascular disease or at high risk of cardiovascular disease. So that is a lot of the time when you're prescribing a drug, you've got to look at their mechanism of action and think there are going to be candidates for one drug versus candidates for another drug. And then there are going to be certain drugs that you shouldn't give to a person altogether because of the patient that you're giving it to and what they might already have going on. Alternatively, drugs such as paracetamol, which is Panadol, um, which is also called acetaminophen, they're not considered NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, because they do not have an anti-inflammatory effect. And their mechanism of action, it's really interesting, their mechanism of action is not clearly understood. It was believed that it worked by blocking COX-2 only in the brain and spinal cord, the central nervous system, but didn't like didn't do much else outside of the central nervous system. However, now we believe that we're kind of questioning that and it seems to be a bit more of a complex process than that that's not directly related to the COX-1 and 2 pathways. And because I'm talking about COX-1 and 2, I'm not going to even get into that today. But that's what makes Panadol a much safer option as a pain relief for people who where NSAIDs are contraindicated. So people who already have stomach ulcers for children, people who are pregnant, people who are breastfeeding, et cetera, et cetera. So good times. That is the brain fact for today, the difference between different painkillers that target the COX-1 and 2 pathways. Fun times ahead if you like pharmacology like me. Uh, Okay, let's get straight into the episode of today. So... We're talking about the sunk cost fallacy. The definition, uh, the sunk cost fallacy is our tendency to continue with an endeavor when we have already invested time, money or resources, even if the cost of staying outweighs the benefits. Full stop. And even if we hate that thing, even if it doesn't serve us, even if we get nothing out of it, we still choose to stay because we're like, I've already invested this much in it. I can't leave now. And a sunk cost is an expense that's been incurred and cannot be recovered. It's not an investment that could give you something back later on. So a sunk cost is kind of like, time is a sunk cost, right? You've like it's spent, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, that time is gone and done, and you can't get it back. Um, a lot of money in certain situations can be a sunk cost. And when you look at something like logically, yes, there's a chance that this investment could could reap some reward, but if, you know, a lot of investments, people sink all this money into it and it keeps going downhill, downhill, but you don't want to realize the cost of how much you've invested in it. So you keep pouring money into it, hoping that it turned around when logically it's like this has never shown that it's going to be profitable and here I am just sinking so much cash into this thing. Um, so it's basically the feeling of I've come this far or we have come this far. I can't give up now, even though I don't want to do it even though I have no interest in doing it and it's likely going to cause me to invest more money, more time into this thing that I don't want to continue with. Okay? So if you've already incurred a loss and if you cannot recover that loss, then people are likely to keep going because they if they were to end it, then it's officially a loss. But if you stay in it, then psychologically you're like, well, I'm still doing it. Is it actually – I haven't lost it yet. It's kind of like gambling. When you're gambling and you keep gambling, gambling, you're still currently in that gambling session. So until you walk away, you haven't officially, well, I mean, you've lost it, but you don't perceive it as a loss until you've ended the session and you weigh up the numbers. You're like, I either won or I lost. Okay. Um, Another example is a really fucked relationship and you spend years and years and years in it. And then you see people being like, well, we've been together for 15 years, and that's literally the reason for staying. That is the perfect example of the sunk cost fallacy, staying in a relationship that you are miserable in purely because you've been together for so long. So unhealthy, so not okay. A degree, people do this all the time, a degree that obviously costs you money if you're in a country that charges you for uni, like this one, Australia. Um, a degree that was expensive but you stay in it because – well, you've done the degree and now you've got a job in that thing that you did the degree in and you are miserable, but you're not going to change it because you're like, well, I've got the degree now. I've spent all those years studying, so now I have to work in in you know in this industry even though I'm miserable and I hate it and I know for a fact that I would be happier doing something else, but you don't want to realise the loss of the money and the years so you stay doing what you're doing even though it's causing you more harm than it's actually causing you good. Um, Also, like I said, money that you've put into a business that you might have started and then you keep pouring money and time into this business that's never going to happen. Even if you're like, I'm not passionate about this fucking business anymore. But you're almost like mortified at the thought of everything you've put towards this business that you force yourself to keep contributing to it, whether it's with time or money, because you don't want to admit that it's a loss. The main thing with the sunk cost fallacy is that you cannot recoup what you've already invested. It can't be recovered. And... Another really good example that I heard online, I wish I could reference where I heard this thing, but it's this idea of going to an event or like a weekend away, but let's call it an event, and you really don't want to go, right? You really, really don't want to go, but you've already bought the ticket, you've already you know, bought the outfit, you've already spent time, energy and money on this event. So even though you're like, I fucking do not want to be there. You're like, well, I've already spent this money. So not only have I already spent the money, but I'm now going to spend more money getting in, driving there or, you know, getting an Uber. I'm going to spend money buying drinks there. I'm going to spend time that I don't want to spend. I'm going to be there miserable purely because I've already spent some money on this thing. When in reality, it'd actually be less of a loss. If you're like, hate that I've already spent money on it, but I'm just not going to go because I know I don't want to go versus forcing yourself to be somewhere you don't want to be and spending more money and more time on that thing. So that's a prime example of the sunk cost fallacy. Another example is when you buy something like a sweet treat after dinner, something you're excited to eat and it tastes like shit, but you're like, well, I've already bought it. So I'm going to eat it and you hate it. But you still eat it anyway because you bought it, right? But that loss, the money that you spent on that thing has already been spent. You're not going to recover it. Whether you eat it or not, you're not going to recover it. The same is watching a series right to the end, being like, this is so shit, but I have to stick it out because I've already watched half of it. What a waste of time. Who is susceptible to the sunk cost fallacy? Everyone is susceptible to the sunk cost fallacy because there's a lot of like psychology that goes in behind it that most of us will fall for. But some are more susceptible to than others to this. Um, But it is, it's basically there's been a lot of research that was done in like behavioural economics and they found like all these different factors that are linked or associated with the sunk cost fallacy. And one big one is called loss aversion. So we as humans, loss aversion is that we as humans are innately loss aversive and that is where we are biased towards avoiding a loss Because we feel that the fear of losing something is more powerful than the hope of gaining something. So winning $1,000 is awesome, but losing $1,000, the feeling of losing $1,000 is like so much worse than the positive feeling of winning. So we, our behaviors are going to be in general, not everyone, but in general, our behaviors are going to be skewed towards avoiding that loss at any cost versus risking something and winning something and you know gaining a win. So how is this linked to the to loss aversion in the sunk cost fallacy when we've already lost the money? Because we still don't want to realize that loss. We don't want that loss to become a reality not just in our minds, but in the minds of or in you know in the eyes of people around us. So we think If I stay in this thing, then it's not technically a loss yet. And you think, well, you know, if I stay in it, then I'm still making the most of that thing that I invested. And and I haven't, you know, lost it, even though you actually have lost it. What we don't realize is we have already lost that thing. Another thing that humans innately don't want to come across as is being wasteful. Even if you genuinely deep down don't care about being wasteful, most people don't want to be perceived as being wasteful. So that's why, again, you're not going to be like, oh, I just did a degree. Fuck it. Fuck the degree. I'm now going to do something else because you're like, wow, what a waste of time and money. That's what like, your initial feeling is going to be. We care about other people's opinions a lot. You care about the, you know, what other people will think about you abandoning something or quote unquote, giving up on something or giving up on your passion or giving up on a relationship after all these years. You know, God forbid you're miserable and depressed, but, you know, people are still going to be like, oh my God, you gave up. When in reality, we worry so much about people's opinions, but we're so biased to think that people care about what we do with our lives. They care enough to talk about it for a little bit until the next exciting thing comes along. But because it's our life, we think that people are going to care as much as we care. No, they don't. Okay, here's a pet hate of mine, bridezillas, when they think that you care about their wedding as much as they do. Don't give a fuck about your wedding as much as you do. Like, it's lovely that you're getting married and I can't wait to be there. But my year is not revolving around your wedding. This is the same idea where you genuinely believe that you're paralyzed and can't make all these decisions in your life and you can't quit because people are going to think the worst of you don't flatter yourself. No one's thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves. They're thinking that you're judging them. Okay. So it's one of the, one of the worst reasons to stay doing something is because of what people will think of you because they don't really think of you that much. And that's a good thing. Okay. Why is it so bad that we have this sunk cost fallacy? Because the loss has already occurred. Whether you stay in that thing and whether you don't, the loss has occurred, and. While it might require you to invest more time and money into something new if you quit, the benefit here is that there's going to be something to gain. And where you are right now, there's nothing more to gain. You're not happy, you're miserable, you feel stuck, and you feel guilty. So there's nothing to gain. And the loss has already occurred. It makes you act against your best interest. This this belief system that we all have, some greater than others, it makes you act against your best interest. You are doing things that are not going to benefit your mental health, your overall happiness and your future. Because you're saying by, 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 by going by this sunk cost fallacy, you're saying my life can only be as good as it has been. It can't improve because I'm stuck in this loss and I'm making this loss bigger. Okay? So it's like literally when people say cutting your losses, it is directly referring to this. That loss will only get bigger if you stay. It's not going to go away. Um, You also cock block yourself from achieving anything that's going to be in direct conflict with what it is that you're staying in. So whether that be a relationship, whether that be a career, whether that be something you could be doing with your spare time because you're already investing that spare time in this side hustle that you fucking hate now, but you're embarrassed to throw it away. You're completely cock blocking yourself. The amount of people that will stay in a relationship after decades purely because they're like, well, you know, it'd be such a waste of 20 years. The years have passed. Those years are never coming back. They're never coming back. You don't have a, a, you know, you don't have a fucking time machine. So whether, whether you stay in this relationship and be miserable or whether you leave this relationship and either a happy alone or find love again, those 20 years are done and dusted, mate. They're never coming back. So to think that it's a waste is to say that the last 20 years of my life is a waste. Is it, though? No, it's not because you still lived those years, okay? The longer you stay, the harder this leaving is going to be. You become really aversive to leaving because the investment gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When the investment is small, the risk and the, and the loss is small. When the investment is big, the risk and the loss is bigger, okay? So if you keep staying here, I can guarantee you're going to feel this way in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, but it's going to be harder to pull the pin because you're going to be like, oh, my God, it's even more years and I feel like I've invested more. Like I've got a friend who he's a lawyer and he hates His job, he works fucked hours. Like the job, he doesn't mind the job. Actually, that's a lie. He doesn't mind the job, but he hates the hours. He has no life whatsoever. He works unbelievable hours every week. I've never seen anything like it. And I am sure he makes good coin, but there is no balance and no quality of life. And I always say to him, "I am like, would you ever consider quitting?" And he's like, "No, my god, do you know how how long it took me to get here?" I am like, "Get where to a miserable place?" Like, genuinely. Get where? You're so miserable. You have no time for your friends, no time for your family. For your sake, not for their sake, but for your sake. You don't get to spend time with the people that you want to spend time with. You never get a break ever. You, you know, it's just so fucked. And he's like, no, 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 no. I've spent so you know, I've spent so hard getting here. Getting where, getting to where you're miserable. And people do this all the time. All the fucking time. So so you then become less likely to take risks in the hope of something great for yourself because your loss aversion is linked to this fallacy, this sunk cost fallacy. So you think, well, I want to recover these losses, even though you can't because it's sunk, but I want to recover these losses and my attention now is going to be on recovering these losses. So therefore I'm living in a reactive state and I'm not in a proactive state Because I am just trying to like protect and recover and make sure that I don't lose any more. And I'm, you know, wasting even more time trying to protect this. And while it would be lovely to live a life where I'm happy and to have a career that makes me happy, even if it means less money, where I can be happy, that's too great a risk. And then I have to finally realize this loss by calling it a day on it. And... When you are influenced by the sunk cost fallacy, you are actually using emotion way more than you're using your logic. So you end up spending more money, more time, more effort, more emotion that's then again going to be sunk because it can't be recovered. And then this is what causes you to stay indefinitely trapped in this loop because you are emotionally attached to not losing, loss aversion Sunk cost fallacy, loss aversion. You get so emotionally attached to not losing that you do not see this as a loss until you walk away, not realizing that you have already lost. You've lost the time. You've lost your mental health. You've lost your peace of mind. This is your opportunity to step away being like, I'm cutting my losses. Literally, I'm cutting my losses. So these are the questions that I want you to ask yourself to feel a little bit more confident in not falling for the trap of the sunk cost fallacy. Firstly, what will I lose if I quit now that I have not already lost? Because there's going to be some things that you will lose, like a job for some people. Um, what, what will you lose? You know, you might lose your partner, but if you're miserable in the relationship, is that that greater loss if you don't even want to be in the relationship? So so ask yourself, what will I lose if I quit now that I have not already lost with the passage of time? What are my fears around quitting? What am I scared of what's going to happen? What are the chances of me finding happiness in this versus the chances of me finding happiness trying something new for myself? Hint, the chances are a lot higher that you're going to find, some, find happiness quitting. What are the realistic chances of me recouping my losses? Realistically. Be harsh. Who am I afraid to disappoint? And if being truly happy is on the cards by disappointing this person because I'm saying, oh, I'm quitting this career that you thought I'd be brilliant at, if being happy is on the flip side of that, is that a fair trade? Sometimes we think the worst thing in the world is to disappoint our parents or disappoint our community because we started in this career and then whatever. But Because of that, we end up leading a life where we're not fulfilled and we're relatively miserable. Another thing is so, they're the questions. Something to think about is I don't want you to look at, even though it's a sunk cost and it's a loss, I don't want you to look at things that you've experienced in your life just because they don't serve you anymore, relationship, career, uni degree, all of that. Just because it doesn't serve you anymore, don't look at it as like I've wasted it. It's never a waste. You still lived those years. You still met people. You had experiences. You created memories. Those years aren't a waste. Okay? You can't get them back. That's true. But they're not a waste because good or bad, you're never going to get them back. So even if, like right now, if I look back, I think, oh, yeah, my last three years were great. My last 10 years were great. You know, there was good and bad in it. But regardless, I can't get them back. So whether they were good or whether they were bad, it's not a waste. It's me living my life. So I don't want you to think, oh, you know, I've done something for the last 10 years. It's a waste if I change what I'm doing now. No, it's not. You still lived, you still experienced, you still met people. So to stay miserable, that makes zero sense because those years are still your years. You still did something with that time. And in almost every scenario, you can always apply your learnings from a different experience into your new experiences. I do it all the time. The shit that I've done that's failed for me many, many times, but I've repurposed those skills into something else that I'm doing. And it works every time. So in future, I want you, when you, when you start something, when you invest your time and energy into something, I want you to think about the importance of knowing when to quit And how to pull out of something. And the important thing to do is have kind of benchmarks or guidelines to know how much am I willing to invest or at what point am I willing to stay in this and at what point do I feel like I have to leave and make it known to yourself before you enter. It's kind of like when you go into an auction, not that I've ever gone into an auction, lol, good times. But when you go into an auction, most people will have an absolute like top ceiling limit of what they're willing to spend. They're not going to go over that limit because if they do, it's just way too much of an investment and they're they're going to be drowning in debt, okay? So they have a limit. You should do the same when it comes to emotional investments, when it comes to time investments. I'm only going to invest X amount of time in this thing. And if I don't start seeing some reward or if I don't start feeling good, I'm pulling out of this investment and I'm going to cut my losses. Before you enter anything, think about it that way. I have to like, what are the markers to let me know that I need to stay? So what are the performance markers and what are the markers that let me know that I need to leave? And look at it coldly and clinically because emotionally it's not really helping us. So you got to do it logically. You have to use logic more than emotion. And a good way flipping this around is how would you advise someone else if you saw someone miserable but only staying in something because they had already spent a few years doing that same thing how would you advise them or how would you want them to live their life we're imagining someone that we actually like here so someone that you respect and like who you want to be happy not your arch enemy what would you advise this person to do okay and that helps you when it comes to advising yourself and figuring out what it is that you want to do Awesome. So that is the podcast on sunk cost fallacy. Cut your losses. Cut the dead weight and give yourself an actual shot at happiness. Give yourself an actual shot at adventure, new love, finding happiness, being alone. Love that so much. All the above. Now we've got the listener question. This is a juicy ass listener question and I can't wait to read it to you guys. It's fucking good. All right. You have one unheard message. Hi, Alexis. I'm a guy and I love your podcasts. I find them very interesting and really valuable, especially as a lot of the time you are coming from a woman's point of view. I am keen to get your thoughts on a situation which will be pretty left field and probably not overly popular, but I would appreciate your brutal honesty. I'm currently married and I have been for the last 16 years. My wife and I had our ups and downs over the marriage, but we get on well and have what I would say is a pretty good marriage on the whole. We have one child together. However, for the last seven years, I have been having an affair with someone who I've grown very attached to. It ended nine months ago. Originally, it started when this person was also married, but she left her ex-husband two years ago. As stated, she met someone else nine months ago and abruptly ended what we had. I have found this extremely hard to deal with and I'm still battling, to be honest. I know what I was doing was wrong, very wrong, but I found myself in a situation where I was in love with two women and knew the only way it would end was for her to meet someone else as she has. She's a cool person and deserves to have... What she's getting now, especially as I couldn't give her fully what she wanted. But it's a constant battle on the daily to not think about her or the situation. And it's doing my head in. I just went back and listened to episode two and I finally cut all links, texts, messenger, Instagram, etc. I thought I could work through it and remain friends. That, that was her current wish, but I finally realized that I can't. I am your classic overthinker slash anxious attached person. So this has been incredibly challenging, especially when you can't move or change your environment for a reset. We live in a fairly small city with triggers everywhere. Now, I know what a lot of your listeners will be thinking, especially the females who have been hurt slash cheated on. But I didn't want to end up this way. Yes, I have made all of the choices myself. But I hope that you can appreciate that for some of us who lack a bit of self-love, sometimes it's not as straightforward as it seems. I want to make it very clear I don't want to leave my wife and would be even more devastated if she found out and left. What I would like your help slash advice on is how do you move forward? How do you get... get the thoughts out of your head and not constantly think about this other person or situation. Reading this letter, I realized how fucked this situation sounds, but I really want to get to the point where I'm giving all my energy, time and love to my wife and family. I know to do this, I need to let go of things or this will literally kill me. Okay, so that's very intense. And look, everyone's got their own you know, thoughts around that I'm going to first preface everything I'm about to say with with saying that I don't believe that everyone who has an affair is a bad person. I don't think that that's the case. However, I do think that there's a very large, not in every affair scenario, but in a lot of affair scenarios, including this one, there's a large degree of injustice in the sense that your current wife, not only does she have no idea that this is happening, but she thinks the relationship is something else, that it's not. As far as I'm concerned, your wife thinks that you that she is the only person, the only love in your life, and that's a lie. You are living a lie. She is living a lie. And it doesn't mean that you can't love two people at once. You can love two people at once, but I have a feeling based on the limited information that I have, that your wife provides you much more of a comfort than she does a romantic love. But it's completely your decision to, you know, not want to leave your wife. And of course, you'd be devastated if she found out and left because you've got anxious attachment style. You would be fucking abandoned. That's what you'd feel if she had the choice. Would she leave? Would she? Ask you? Ask yourself, if my wife knew what happened, would she leave me? And if the answer is yes, then ask yourself, would she be in her right to leave me? Because the answer is yes to that as well. Now, you might never tell her and that's your call. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your marriage and with your life. But a lot of the issues that are stemming here is the fact that you have this big secret that you're struggling with. Okay, because you can't really talk to many people about it. So on top of the fact that you're going through this heartbreak, you're not able to tell people about it because you obviously don't want your wife to find out and you don't want it to hurt your wife. But I think a lot of your issues here, while I don't agree with you know, because you're also not giving your wife an option to also go and shag someone else. What if she's like, cunt, we could have had an open relationship, you were there freely, you know, banging whoever you wanted to bang. What What if she wanted to do the same that you want to do but out of respect for you she didn't? So it's a very skewed dynamic here and I find it very unfair and I was thinking about this earlier and it's frustrating because I was saying to my producer before, I was like, I would be devastated if Tyrone cheated on me. But one of the biggest things that would hurt me is the behind my back. I could almost, like it would hurt me so much, but I could almost wrap my head around the fact that he had slept with someone or whatever, but the fact that he's like lying through his teeth and pretending that the relationship is something that it's not would be a killer for me, a fucking killer because you've deceived me. So I think it's really difficult to try and... Possible but difficult to try and mend things in the relationship when they don't even know what it is that you're mending. And also, I've noticed here, you're not even trying, you're not prioritizing your marriage here. You're talking about how you feel. So I feel really bad for your wife. So I'm, I'm going to address how you can start to feel better about yourself right now. But I'm just going to say, I feel terrible for your wife. This is a very unfair situation. But each to their own, everyone has their own like. Dramas. Now, when it comes to you and getting over this heartbreak, I think you've got to be focusing on not so much breakup tips and breakup tools, but because you're a classic overthinker and you're very anxiously attached, the fact that she would have left you would have triggered a lot of this anxiety around attachment and abandonment. So for you personally, I think you need to be doing more work on things around self-love and finding things that are going to reinforce your purpose outside of that. So this is this is relevant to all kind of breakups for people that are anxiously attached. When you do something outside of yourself and when you contribute to something else, you start feeling like part of something bigger and it's really good to soothe the soul. So I would I'm glad that you've cut her out of everything because that's one of the best ways to start like mending things. To have her constantly in your life is constantly keeping her top of mind, top of mind, and that's just not going to be healthy. You've already got your memory for that. You don't need texts, friendships, all of that when you're still in love with somebody. Um, But I think that it's really important to come up with something new that's going to give you like a really strong sense of like being. And that could be, it could be helping people do something, volunteering somewhere. It could be whatever it is, but it always comes in the form of giving back in some way, shape or form. When you give back, you actually gain a lot. You gain a lot in the form of confidence, in the form of self-love and self-respect. You start to feel like because you are contributing, you start to feel that you are worth more. And then that builds up your self-esteem and how valuable you feel as a person towards yourself and how valuable you feel towards other people. So I think that getting involved in something that you're not currently involved in, that's going to A, get your mind off it and B, get you out of your head and, you know, focusing on something that's greater than yourself, you're going to start to feel a whole lot better. And I think this this applies to not just heartbreak, but this applies to any level of anxiety and sadness. The moment you get people kind of contributing outside of themselves to something that they think matters, it completely changes how they feel about themselves. And a lot of heartbreak has to do with you not feeling, ultimately, not feeling good enough for that person. Because, and the reason I say this is if, and I don't think anyone's better than anyone else. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with, it's not that people are better than other people, unless you're a rapist, in which case you're scum, but it's not that people are better than other people. It is more so that there are better matches for you. And if you, if someone dumped you, but you knew for a fact that there was an infinitely better match for you, you would not be that heartbroken, no matter how much you loved that person, because you would understand that there would be a better match out there for you, okay? often the, the depths of the heartbreak comes down to you feeling that you'll never get that person or someone like that person ever again. It's the finality of I may never experience that again, and it's this deep mourning. But the moment you start to work on your relationship with yourself, you feel better about yourself, and therefore you think, I'm actually capable of having these like really great feelings, either ones that I provide for myself or ones that I find elsewhere. Now, I would also advise you to do things that are going to take your... If you don't want to leave your wife, you owe her fucking big time. Can't. Love you so much for being a listener, but seriously, you owe her. So it is your job now to, if you're deciding to stay in this marriage, and I know you said you're giving her time, energy and love. I'm glad. That's the bare minimum. But I want you now to do things in the marriage that you have not done before. You have to level up as a husband to your wife because she, the bare minimum deserves that. Okay. If you're not going to tell her, Hey, this is what I've done. You now have the option to stay or to leave. Then you need to fucking, you need to make this marriage fun. You need to be doing things that make her feel really fucking valued. You need to be doing things that where you preempt her needs and you're there for her before she has to ask for something, understand what her love language is and cater to that love language do things that are going to improve your marriage because you could have what it is that you're looking for outside of your marriage in her but never gave it your all and you were off having an affair with somebody else okay so the grass is greener where you water it so water the fucking grass at home and see if that changes how you feel that is all Love you guys so much. Love you all for listening to the podcast. Um, If you want to send in your listener question, just send it into info at dyfmpod.com. Anyway, good times. Happy Monday. Love you all. And as always, remember, be kind to yourself. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke. Listener.